We're in Matthew chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship your Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Westside. Again, we are glad that you're here, and we are finishing up our series, um, Defining Moments, today. And I tell you what, this has been a defining series for us, but let me tell you something. Uh, Each fall, every year, we sort of block out in the schedule and do sort of a vision series about who we are and where we think God is taking us as a church. And let me tell you, Westside, I, I believe that God has something in store for us over these next few months. So next week, we start a brand new series entitled The Upper Room. And we are going to be in John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 17, which is called the Upper Room Discourse. We're going to be in that all the way up to Advent and to Christmas. So that's primarily what we do here at Westside. We either teach through books of the Bible, or we drop down in a portion of Scripture, and we spend a lot of time. And I am so excited because we're going to be walking through this portion of Scripture, seeing the marks of what a mature disciple is. Jesus speaks to his followers the last night, and there is it's one of my favorite portions of Scripture. So please remember that. Be inviting your friends. It's a great time to invite someone if you've been wanting to bring them. Next week, we start a brand new series. So listen, I'm going to do just a little bit of recap, and then we're going to fly into this thing. We've been talking about defining moments. And what is a defining moment? And we said that a defining moment moment is, by definition, is an experience that is memorable, meaningful, and missional. 
It's that moment in your life where either everything's going to change or something's going to change. It's memorable. You remember where you were on September the 11th. You remember where you were when that child was born. You remember where you were when you got that phone call. It's memorable, but it's also meaningful. So much happened in those moments that made an impact on you. But lastly, it's missional, meaning this, that it changes your direction. That maybe it changes just as small as how you interact with people. Or for some of us, it, it changed our very life. We, we switched careers or we did something different because of that defining moment. And we said that this comes from the scriptures, that we learn about this defining moment, this moment in time, and there's a word for it, and it starts with K. What is it again? Kairos. I love it, man. I love when people are talking to me, and they're like, I was, I was talking to my friend, and they were going through something, and, and, and I told them that, oh, this is one of those, um, uh, you know, it's kind of like Cairo syrup. You know, it's, uh, it's Kairos, right? There is, a, there is a word in the scriptures that the Bible says about time. It's not chronos. It's not the minutes, seconds, hours, tick-tock, tick-tock but rather it's kairos. And what a kairos is, is it's God's timing in our time. It's when we become aware, whoa, God is doing something here. It can be as simple as a conversation. It can be a life-altering event. But in that moment, you become aware that God is doing something in your life. Um, just by way of introduction, now we're into this. Does, does anybody remember the really, really famous book? And it became a really, really famous movie um, called The Notebook. Nicholas Sparks, right? We remember that. You, you knew your relationship. If you were dating and you watched this, it was like, I'm, we're probably getting married. We're probably going to get married, right? It was, it was the one up in the relationship. It was a big deal. The movie, I mean, it was just sold millions and, and all of that stuff. And there's a moment in this movie, it's a love story um, about his wife battling Alzheimer's, and he's there forever. He loves her through it all. And there's moments where she gets glimpses and knows who he is, and oh man, it's just a tearjerker, right? But there is a famous, famous scene in this movie that now is memes everywhere and all of this stuff when they're standing in front of the house and he says to her, would you stop thinking about what everybody else wants? And then she goes into the rant of, but my mom and this and my life's planned. And he says over and over again to her, what do you want? What do you want? What do you want? And now husbands use this everywhere when we're deciding where to eat after church, right? What do you want, right? Just, just tell me what you want. And the famous, I don't care, right? Then you throw out a suggestion and they're like, nah. Then it's like, you do care. You do care, right? But it's, it's what do you want? And he says it over and over and over. Um, what if I told you this? What if I told you that that question is the number one question when it comes to being a follower and a disciple of Jesus. Listen, we're going in the deep waters this morning. And any time that Jesus performs a miracle or there's an interaction in the Gospels, 
Example, blind Bartimaeus comes up to Jesus. Blind Bartimaeus. He's known for being blind. And he comes to Jesus, runs up to him, and Jesus sees him and says, what do you want me to do for you? Um, well, uh, I'm blind, so maybe we should start there, right? Maybe sight, that would be great. Or how about the crippled man? Um, when Jesus passes by, Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Or how about this example, when Jesus is walking with the disciples? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow, really? This is like an Aladdin moment here, okay? That's pretty brave to come up and say that. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit on one on, one on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Right, real humble dudes here, okay? They're like, Jesus, you know, we pieced it together. We think you probably have a throne in the kingdom. And you know, James and I were just kind of wondering, could we sit next to you, right? I mean, goodness gracious. And then I love this. Jesus, like a, a firm parent, says to them, yeah, uh, you have no idea what you're asking, okay? You have no idea what you're asking. But Jesus always says, what do you want? What do you want? And I believe that that question flies in the face of what we think it is to be a follower and a disciple of Jesus. If I could, grab me that uh, whiteboard right there, Andy Grace, if you can get that. I think that what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we have greatly, greatly confused. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for Vanna White this morning, right? <laughs> Thank you, baby girl. Thank you. That if we see in all interactions, Jesus says, what do you want me to do? From something so obvious as blind Bartimaeus or a crippled man, that means that there's something deeper. But, but rather, sometimes we, we come to Jesus thinking that we want something, and Jesus is saying, mm, you, you actually don't even want that. You see, I think a lot of us think that when it comes to following Jesus, one of the main things that we need to focus on uh, may be our words, right? what we say. Um, this is growing up around here sort of in the Bible Belt, right? I always make fun that a lot of us think that following Jesus means don't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do, right? That it's this idea, we've got to watch my language because the mouth is the overflow of the heart, and it's all of that. Or if it's not words, um, maybe how about this? How about our works? What we do, and I think that we really think that following Jesus is focusing on these two things. What I say and what I do and I need to behave and I need to... And very quickly, Christians become a group of people who are defined by what they are against rather than what they are for. And if you live in this level of following Jesus, there's a lot of fear 
There's a lot of, man, you know, if I were to die today, would I go to heaven? Like, I, I hope so, but there was that thing. And like, you know, then you drive by the guy walking on the road and you're like, should I pick him up? Should I not? Was that Jesus? It's probably Jesus. And then when I get to heaven, God's going to be like, you didn't pick me up on the side of the road. And you're like, oh, right. And, and you're just living in this constant state of anxiety and fear. And can, can we be honest in church? Um, it's exhausting, right? And then you read Jesus say, like, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. And there's, all, and there's a clash. There's this, like, I know it says that, but this is really, really important. I would venture to say that it's not the words, that it's not the works, but rather there's something that's underneath the surface, you see, this is, this is external. This is in church what we do a really good job of observing, right? Of, of measuring someone's life by what we can see. But if this is the line of awareness, there's something internal that Jesus is after. And it's not so much the words, and it's not so much the works. What it really is, is our wants, or to say it another way, our desires. You see, when Jesus comes to the crippled man, and the man is crippled, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, let me walk. Why did Jesus ask that question? Because it's sort of like a filtering process. Think about it. This man can't see past just being able to walk, which, whoa, that's a good goal, okay? If you've been crippled all your life, you've probably been thinking about walking at some point. But maybe in that question, Jesus is saying, um, hey, you think the end game is for me to heal you and you be able to walk, but you're, you're going to have to get a job now. And you're going to have to go places in the city you, you, you've never been before. And you're going to have to have relationships maybe that you forgot about. Do you see? Oftentimes we come to Jesus with what we think is the end all, be all. And if I could just get Jesus to blank, then all the pieces would fall together. And just like he told James and John, man, you don't know what you're asking. And do you know what's interesting? If you are kind of maybe arguing with the preacher a little bit, ah, I don't know if that's really true. I mean, the wants and the desires, yeah, that's important, but that's not really, you know. Um, think about it this way. Think about the story of the prodigal son and the elder brother. The prodigal son, by all external measures, squandered his wealth, dishonored his father, and he comes home. And he returns. There's a moment of repentance. We learned about repentance. And, and the father um, slaughters the fattened calf. He gets the robe. He gets the ring. And he celebrates. He says, this son who I thought was dead, now he's home. This is great. And at the feast, there's an empty chair. Because the elder brother doesn't come inside. Do you know why? 
Well, the older brother says it to his father. I cannot believe that you're, you're, you're slaughtering the fattened calf. You're doing all of it. I never got a ring. I never got a robe. I've never squandered the wealth. I've never done those things before. But what he's saying is, by all measures externally, I've done everything right. Until the moment that he didn't get what he wanted. And could I just tell you that how important our internal life is, is just like an iceberg. We focus on such a small portion of our life that our desires and our wants rule every decision that we make. And if you don't think it's that important, I would ask you to examine this. One of the truest marks of spiritual maturity is watching how you respond when you don't get what you want. I mean, think about it. We don't even have to teach little babies this, right? They have something, you take it away, and they do one of two things. They turn to jello, right, the wet noodle, or they go stiff as a board, man, right? Like, where did they learn that? Dad, have they seen you when your wife was like, take out the trash, and you just went into a noodle right there on the floor, right? Some of you are like, yes. Oh, my, no, I'm just kidding, right, okay? But the truest mark of and a true test of spiritual maturity is responding and how we act when we don't get what we think that we want and is the major thing. So when it comes to the temptation of Jesus, what, how does all of this come together? Listen, if I could end this series on any note, it is getting beneath the surface to true discipleship and internal health. If you've noticed the order, Jesus just had the baptism. This is the moment. He goes to John, the heavens are ripped open. I love that line. They're ripped open and everybody there hears an audible voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove comes and descends onto Jesus. We see the Trinity in one little passage. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And then there's this little haunting verse at the beginning of chapter 4. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. There, I could preach a whole sermon on that one verse. You know, A.W. Tozer says, Christians don't tell lies as often as they sing them. And when we say stuff like, Spirit, lead me where your trust is without borders, right? Spirit might lead you into the wilderness. Why is this happening? We just heard affirmation, confirmation, acceptance. This is the divine um, inauguration of Jesus' ministry. But the true test still lies below the surface. And it's interesting when we look at how the enemy tempts Jesus. One of the things that's so powerful for Christians to understand, as Spurgeon said, is that the devil does not have any new tricks. Nothing's new. We have the playbook. How Jesus was tempted in the wilderness is the same way Adam and Eve were tempted in the garden. 
The same thing that in 1 John it says, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, but it is so subtle. It is so subtle. One author puts it this way, T.S. Eliot, the last temptation is the greatest treason to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Do you know who scares me the most in the Bible? Bar none, hands down. The Pharisees. You know why? Jesus had the harshest words and interaction with the most religious, moral, conservative people in town. Why? Because they focused on the external. They never really allowed God below the surface. And a Kairos moment happens is when you become aware of what's underneath that line of awareness. Oh, maybe at work why I'm striving so much is because blank. I mean, the temptation is not just evil, like, hey, Jesus, here's a bag of cocaine and a bunch. Like, that's not the temptation. The temptation is to maybe even do good things for the wrong reason. Or how about this, as one church father says, the enemy never immediately tempts us with what is obviously bad. Instead, he is more likely to deceive us with the appearance of good. Now, now we're on it. Now we are below the surface. If you allow Jesus to lead you here, I believe that you will see your relationship with Jesus change forever. And what if, what if we could understand through the scriptures, understanding who a human being is and what they desire, any psychologist, any doctor, but most importantly, through the pages of Scripture, we can really see what every human being desires and longs for. There's sort of three markers and three categories for a healthy, holistic human being who is a healthy individual desires in their life. Three things. Belonging, security, and significance. Hands down. Interesting, in the 1970s, um, Russia conducted an experiment where they took a group of about a dozen to half a dozen newborn babies and took them into a facility and only fed them and changed them as the child needed. They did not rock the child. They did not sing to the child. They did not, you know, laugh. They didn't. It was a very sterile environment. And they fed them and they changed them and they gave them what they just needed as a human being. And to watch the results of that experiment when those babies grew up to be toddlers, they had no understanding of emotion. There was no empathy. There was no love. One of them never smiled, ever. I'm saying all that to say that as a human being, you have core needs and desires and wants. And do you know how powerful sin is? Do you know how powerful sin is? is that sin comes and distorts and takes a good thing and then makes it a God thing. 
The language in the Bible is idolatry. So what sin does is it comes along and distorts and says, you desire this belonging. Belonging's not a bad thing. Security's not a bad thing. Significance is not a bad thing. But what you do is not near as important as why you do it. Looking at the temptation, just walking through, we can see these three things in the temptation. Look at the first one when the enemy says, if you are the son of God. Very interesting, right? Because um, just at the baptism, wasn't there a voice from heaven that said something? Oh, yeah, it was like, you are the son of God. Do you see how subtle it is? Just a little question, just a little doubt. If you are the son of God... Tell this stone to become bread. Now, again, Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. We have two people in the scriptures that did that, Jesus and Moses, right? I mean, this is the Mount Everest of spiritual disciplines here. Jesus is hungry. He might literally be depleted. And the fear is, I don't have what I need. And it's so easy to go, make this stone become bread. Are you following it? It's not a bad thing. Jesus turns a Lunchable, a kid's Lunchable, to feed 5,000 people. It's not what you do. It's why you do it. Or how about this next one? If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. I feel like this is a test that a junior high boy would say, right? Hey, if you really are God, well, just go somewhere tall and jump off it. And maybe the angels will catch yours. Huh? That'd be cool, right? Right? But it's this idea that if people see you do that, then they'll really know that you're the son of God. Because people all through Jesus' ministry said, you're not God, you're not God, you're not God. Man, it would be so easy just to do a simple miracle to finally get them to believe. But then the point is not being the son of God. The point is what those people think about me. Or how about this last one? The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will simply fall down and worship me. Look at all these kingdoms, power, rule, authority, all of those. That can be yours. If you just do it this way, Remember what he said in the garden? You will not surely die if you eat of the tree. God is holding out on you. That is the lie you and I battle every single day. That I can get belonging, security, or significance by going around God and his ways to fulfill my heart's desire. I mean, think about sex, think about money, think about all, that is what all of this is. It's all idolatry saying, I can get that without God. So, what does it look like to really have a Kairos moment to go beneath the surface and go, wow, I really am at work doing this or in this conversation, I'm very anxious or anytime someone says this or why do I overwork or why do I always feel shame or why? Maybe it's because out of these three areas, we're trying to get something in a way that God never said that we could get it. 
So, so this is going to hurt a little bit, okay? But I love you, all right? You can punch me in the arm in the lobby, okay? All right? But I want to spend some time looking at these three areas of belonging, security, and significance. Listen, this sermon's not for Bill. This, don't, don't, oh, I got to send them. You're asking right now if Jesus was sitting next to you saying, what do you want? What do you want below the surface? Belonging says this, I am what others think of me. So in order to be a part of my family or a group of people, I am constantly in the back of my mind running a narrative of what do they think? Did I overdo this? I talked, I did, I wasn't a part of this. They left me out here. They did that. And the lie that you believe is I am what others think. The core sin is shame is shame. Shame is a very, very powerful thing. It is constantly saying, um, I have to, well, the lie is I have something to hide. So in order for me to be loved, I, I have to hide something in my life. So I'm always jockeying for position. I always have to maintain this level of appearance in relationships and anything like that. So anytime it comes to prayer requests, other people have spilled their guts out. And I'm like, um, the weather. Because if I say this, then they're going to think something. And if they think something, they're going to say it to someone else. Then there's going to be seven people that know. And if there's seven people that go, and if I ever go forward on Sunday, I know all of those seven people are going to go. I know why they're going forward. And it, do you see how it begins? You've got to understand the good news in this area. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is God sees, God knows, and God loves. Please listen to me. You are fully known and fully loved at the same time. Whatever you think you are actually hiding, you are not hiding. God knows. All God wants is for you to trust him with it. To trust him with it and then watch the freedom rush into your life. That's belonging. What about security? To be safe, whether in relationships, financial, however that plays out. Security says, I am what I have. I am what I have. So if you continue to play this out to the line, you will climb the ladder, you will stomp on heads, you will do whatever you have to do in order to ensure that you possess what you think that you need. And your core sin is always fear. Always fear. Because you constantly have something to lose. Always. So whether it be the relationship, whether it be possessions, whatever it is, is there is a constant fear that this can be taken away from me. And the lie is, I have something to lose. But can you understand what the good news is in this area? Is that do we really believe that Jesus has provided everything that we need? So that in the book of Philippians, you could say what the Apostle Paul says, that I have learned the secret of contentment, that to either have much or to have nothing, that I know that I have everything that I need in Christ, and that everything is secured. 
and that nothing can be taken away from me that is not given to me by Jesus Christ. That's security, but what about significance? Significance says, I am what I do. The core sin of significance is guilt. Um, Guilt and shame work differently. Guilt means that you failed and you wear it constantly. Shame says, I'm a failure. Guilt says, I made a mistake, I'm not good enough. Shame says, I am a mistake. Do you see the difference? But when it comes to guilt, there's always more that can be done. And the lie is, is that you always have something to prove. Constantly. Every conversation is hijacked. Every everything, you can't celebrate others. Any of those things. But what the good news of Jesus is, is that Jesus thinks that you're a pretty big deal. Just the way that you are. You see, God loves us so much that he loves us the way we are, but he loves us too much to keep us there. And do you know what's incredible as I have spent time in my own emotional health is you'll find that you think you're one thing, but you're actually using one thing to get to the other. So some of you right now are like, man, I'm definitely significant. I always think I am what I do, and I'm always wanting to try to achieve. But even when you go below the surface on that, you come to realize Well, I want to impress people because I want people to accept me and to love me. Please listen to me. If you get to the core of following Jesus, Jesus is not as concerned as what you do as Jesus is concerned why you're doing it. Did you know that we could be rebels setting ourselves against God through the path of obedience being external. Think about it. Your mind should be running with scenarios. When Jesus watched everybody give the offering on Sunday, he watched all the religious people put money in, and everybody that put money in did it by understanding that if I do this, then God will love me. Then there was a broke little old lady who didn't have anything. And she put the only money she had in, and Jesus stopped the service. And he said, she gets it. She gave out of her very life because she did not believe the lie that if I give, then God will love me. She understand the truth that God loves me, so therefore I can give anything. Therefore I can give anything. This is the profound difference in religion And the true gospel. And do you know what keeps me up at night? In the area of Butler County where there's churches, Dollar Generals, and Mexican restaurants on every corner. Is everybody thinks they know. That I can do this and that I can do this. And my grandma took me to the Easter cantatas. And I did this and I did this. But in the depths of your soul and the recesses of your heart, there is no love for Christ. And I've come to tell you today that you don't know Jesus unless you let Jesus get to the desires and the wants of your heart. Unless it's free and clear. I have nothing and I own nothing. I want to end the series with understanding this as we close. Do you know what the greatest kairos that you can ever have in your life is? Hands down, the greatest kairos is this. 
I am more sinful and broken than I could have ever imagined. But I am more loved and accepted by Jesus than I could ever dare dream. That is the greatest kairos that you could ever have in your life. So as we close, it's only right that the big idea to bring this all together, I mean, we've walked through the learning circle, we've walked through everything, but we are on it now. Why does Jesus say things like, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is? Or from the mouth comes these things, but they come from the heart. Jesus wants our desires. So the question that I have to end with is this. What do you want? What do you want? No, no, no. No, no, no. What do you want? You don't want another bid on another job. You don't want the other thing or the rate. No, 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 no. Why do you want that? What do you want? And when we are honest about that, Jesus will take us places we could never imagine. The second question is this. How am I fighting and striving for it? There's where you find your, your kairos. That, that why is it that when someone is sending a text and you're in intense conversation and then they don't text back, that you're in a constant anxiety of checking your phone and oh my goodness, and what about this? They just ghosted me. Did they see the message? Yeah, it's got the check mark. It says seen right there, but I don't have a message back. And I don't have, right? Why is it that when these four people are talking and you're not in the conversation, there's a little bit of anxiety that kicks in? Why is it that there's uh, always another job or there's always another thing or there's always, why? Where are you striving and fighting for those things? There's your kairos. The third thing is this. What is the first step of surrender that the Holy Spirit is leading me to do? What does that look like for you now? To just surrender that honesty and that desire back over to Jesus. And the last question is very simply this. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? How crazy is it that some of us have grown up in church all of our life and we say things like, I trust Jesus with my salvation, my eternal security, steadfast and stay. No one can take it away. The Lord is my... I mean, all of these things we learn. God created the universe and we trust him with our salvation. But we are riddled with anxiety like a toddler when we don't get control of a certain situation. May we give it to God and see freedom in our life. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you today asking that we would be laid open bare before you, Jesus. That we would not be distracted by words and, and, our, and works and all of that. It's not about what we do, but Jesus, you are so concerned about why why we do it. Because in those moments, in the depths, in the recesses of our soul, we find that there's areas that we've truly not let you in. And if we are honest, goodness gracious, if we are just simply honest, that's the reason why the relationships are in shambles.
That's why I cycle through friends, cycle through churches, cycle through jobs. It's because there is this idol in my life that if I don't maintain control, I leave. But the reality is, is we're exhausted. Oh, we are so exhausted. And I pray today that through the proclamation of your word and through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would trust you with our desires, with our wants. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.